Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hey, everybody. Familiar faces. Um, uh, I'm glad to be here, and thank you guys for being here. Um, uh, I... Sorry, I'm in a bit of a daze. I can't believe this is, is actually happening. Um, I, uh, the, my book published yesterday. Um, it's a book that I started working on um, a few years ago. Um, if you have read anything about it, you know that uh, this is based on an experience in my life. Um, but it, the book itself just kind of grew out of it. And um, it, is, it sort of ended up very far from, from where it started. Um, and I, uh, I wanted to start out by reading a, a really short um, part of an essay, and then I'm going to transition into the book and read um, a part of the book. And if you guys have questions at the end, I'm really happy to answer. Um, so the first thing I'm going to read, um, I actually... Um, this essay I wrote a few days after the election that just happened, and I read a different part of it um, right here when, um, as part of uh, an event that the Los Angeles Review of Books did. And um, afterwards, I um, kind of made it into more of a finished essay, and they ended up publishing it along with um, the work of several other writers. Um, they were also reflecting on the election. So I think, you know, the thing to keep in mind here is uh, I think it's, it's, it's generally fruitless to try and reflect on something as big um, and complex as an election in, the in a couple of days afterwards. You're never going to get everything. But um, I thought that uh, the beginning of it is still relevant. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about Los Angeles and a couple of other places that I've lived. So um, I wanted to, to bring it in here today. And um, this essay is called The Other Side of Fear. Can you guys hear me? I'm not a, a performer, so I'm not great with mics. Um, and this was published November 25th, 2016 on the LA Review of Books. I grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia. There were mostly white people, some black people, and few in between. Like most places in America, my hometown was deeply segregated, and my family, as a mixed-race immigrant family living in the white part of town, felt alone, caught between white and black, rich and poor, American and not. My childhood was littered with small instances of racism, subtle reminders from my peers that I was different from them, that though I may have outperformed them in nearly every aspect of life, in this one respect, the color of my skin, I would always be inferior. There was the time I called my friend's house and, her, and heard her parents mutter a racial slur in the background, or when my college acceptances were dismissed as a result of affirmative action or when the opposite happened and I was accepted as one of them, but on the condition that my identity was rejected. You're not like those other black people, Zinzi. 
more than one of them said to me. On November 8th, Hillary Clinton won 59% of votes in my home county. Donald Trump won 37%. It seems that many people are surprised at the racism this election has unearthed. This country is, always has been, and probably always will be virulently racist. Those of us who are unsurprised by the election results do not have the privilege of forgetting this fact. We did not go to bed on November 8th and wake up in a more racist country. It was just one of those moments when racism made itself seen, when it popped, us, when it popped up to remind us, I'm still here. So what exactly happened? Many of us are still piecing this together, trying to distinguish the truth from the ever-present media spin. To me, it's simple. Trump, no political genius, but rather a lucky idiot, used the oldest trick in the book, and it worked beautifully, bigly. He saw in the white working class a receptive audience, and knowing that he couldn't offer them any substantive help, fed them hateful rhetoric branded as straight talk. This drew a formerly reliable Democratic voting bloc to his side. The results support this narrative. According to NPR, Clinton's numbers were down marginally with all groups compared to Obama's in 2012. The one truly glaring difference was white working class voters. In 2012, they voted overwhelmingly for Obama, but in, 2020, but in 2016, they flipped completely to Trump by as much as 23 points in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, all states associated with the Rust Belt and the Democrats' former blue wall. This remains Trump's most and perhaps only successful negotiation, his biggest con job in a career of con jobs. While the rest of us are fighting the KKK, he does what he wants with the purse strings in Washington. It is a political strategy as old as time, and at this, its newest iteration, I stand unimpressed. When my now husband and I were looking for a place to settle in 2014, we decided on upstate New York, an area considered part of the Rust Belt, where Hillary Clinton campaigned heavily and won during her 2000 Senate bid. The place was cheap, and we needed a quiet place to finish writing our books. In its heyday, much of this area was the vacation destination of choice for New Yorkers, home to campgrounds and casinos. That was before jet travel became affordable in the 70s, and those same families picked Miami, California, and destinations abroad for their holidays instead. What is left of this place now is basically a ghost town, most of the old hotels and casinos still stand abandoned, along with empty farmhouses and warehouse buildings. Whenever I spoke to others there, I braced myself for the casual racist remark, or worse, because I am black and my husband is white. After Charleston, we noticed Confederate flags flown on pickup trucks and outside of farmhouses and trailers, and I felt like someone had danced on a family member's grave. I cried harder than I ever have for people I have never met. But what happened most often was that people would ask us the same question over and over. Why would you move here? Over time, we learned what was behind that question. We had options, and this was a place for people who had none. On November 8, about a year after we moved away, 55% of this county voted for Trump, to Clinton's 41%. 
A few months ago, longing again for city life in the open skies out west, my husband and I drove all of our belongings cross-country and moved into my grandfather's old apartment in Los Angeles in a former working-class neighborhood, now an affluent, up-and-coming place that little resembles the place I visited as a child. It wasn't long before we noticed that police routinely stopped black drivers across the street from our apartment complex because it constitutes a border with South Central, and this is their way of policing who comes into our neighborhood. The last time this happened, I waved at the police from our balcony to let them know I was watching. This time, they shone their spotlight at me from across the street and barked into the loudspeaker, what are you looking at? I had trouble sleeping that night, playing out in my mind what would happen if they showed up at our door. My grandfather served in World War II as a kitchen hand on board a Navy ship. He had dreams of becoming a deep sea diver, but was denied that position because he was black. After the war, he worked as a baggage handler down the road at LAX for some 40 years. That one bedroom apartment, now our home, is his biggest legacy. A few months ago, after more than a month of filing noise complaints about our neighbors barking dogs, I finally met our building manager face to face. She was a small white woman with a Hispanic last name. When I dared to suggest that she had been ignoring our complaints, she abruptly ended our meeting by calling in a security guard to escort me out of the building. I wanted to tell her that I was a college professor, an author, that other people respected me, but I knew that my character was beside the point, just as it had been in my childhood. 59% of Los Angeles voted for Hillary Clinton to Trump's 37%. So, now I'm going to read a, a little bit from the book. Um, and... This may seem like a spoiler at first, but it's not because everybody knows what happens. The mother passes away. Um, and part of the reason we know that is, and why it's not a spoiler, is because um, this is this novel I did not construct chronologically, right? So if you can imagine um, the narrator slash protagonist in the present tense and thinking back to all of these different memories um, and um, really what is triggered is um, she in the present tense as we learn in the preface the prologue to the book um, she's pregnant and over the course of the novel you find out um, that along with her what has happened um, and her becoming pregnant and, and starting a family and, and um, finding a partner basically brings to mind these memories of her mother as they do. Um, and so the book is constructed um, in this kind of uh, associative way, right? So it goes from topic to topic. Um, and I'm going to, this part that I'm about to read comes in the middle. A story came up on the local news about a murder not far from our house in a much rougher neighborhood where this type of thing was ordinary, almost expected. The news was filled with stories from those blocks, faces of its children alternately lost, made criminal, locked away. They showed a man's picture. He was dark-skinned with a white beard and white eyebrows, a friendly smile. He looked around my mother's age. He was a mail carrier for a neighborhood in the south. 
He went out in the morning to work, and on his way to the subway, he was jumped by two thieves. He refused to give up his wallet and cell phone, and they shot him. He died on the sidewalk. My mother turned to me with surprising calm. She spoke as if she were discussing someone else's life, someone else's mother. He's just like me, she mused. I'll die too. It's just that how I'll go is more decided. Yes, Mom, I said, and we turned back to the news. More deaths, more robberies. Life went on. My mother wasn't able to stay in the bedroom any longer. She could barely sit up on her own, and it was too difficult for us to move her on their old king-sized bed. A social worker came to the apartment and walked through each of the rooms, occasionally stopping to take a measurement and scratch the figure down on her clipboard. Two days later, a large truck pulled up outside our building, and an hour later, a hospital bed was set up in our living room. The hospital bed was stiff, menacing. It looked institutional and cold amid the warm colors of our living room walls, hung with my mother's African tapestries, blankets, and textiles that were her pride and joy. When we first brought her into the living room, my mother resisted. It pains my back, she said in her confused, drug-addled English. She insisted on sleeping on the couch. My father or I slept in the hospital bed instead. She woke up several times during the night needing medicine or help going to the toilet. I would switch on the light, pull the plastic commode next to her, lift her off the couch, and then pull her back onto the couch when we were done. The whole process took around 15 minutes, and once it was completed, we were up for the next hour. I barely slept during the nights I tended to her, so I rested alternate nights while my father took the replacement shift. One night while on shift, I was awoken by my mother's bald head hovering over me. Half asleep, I was happy to see her standing for the first time in months. I want to go home, she said. She paced around the bed, possessed by some strange, dark energy. You are home. I got to my feet and walked after her. She began crying and tearing at her clothes. She ripped at the few stray hairs that dotted her scalp. She walked faster, and I had to chase her to the other side of the living room. When I finally caught my mother, I hugged her to me. She was shaking, sweaty. I rubbed her back, trying to calm her. I miss my father, she said. I realized to which home she was referring. I realized she would never see South Africa, South Africa again, her father, brothers and sisters, her many friends. At times during the day, I felt heroic, but then I felt small, worthless, I would never do this for her. Eventually, I coaxed her into bed and curled up beside her. The bed was so narrow that we never would have fit on it together when she was healthy. I tried to find words that would fill the space that her home had left, but there was nothing. I'm tired, Mom, I whispered as I dozed off. My father and I didn't communicate much except to coordinate nurse visits for my mother or to give updates on her medicines. We were holding so much in, our pain distinct from each other's in many ways. I suppose we thought that if we ever acknowledged this, all our carefully assembled control would fall to pieces. I was terrified of his pain, that of losing a lifelong partner so many years tossed out the window. And I'm sure he feared the destabilization of my loss, how much my life yet to live would be marred by this. Because my father was a man and relatively young, a part of me was scared that he would leave. That was always the fear with men. I suppose this was a part of the not talking, the not crying. 
I thought that if I didn't acknowledge the horror we were, we were living in, it somehow wouldn't be as bad and he would stay. But day after day, he didn't leave, and his eyes never wavered from her when she was wheeled out of the hospital or lifted into the car or when she was being sutured or changed or intubated. So many times when I couldn't look anymore, he did. In my nights off shift, caring for my mother, I started to troll online dating sites and personal ads. I found Liz and Patrick's ad in the personal section on Craigslist. They were a young couple in West Philly on the opposite side of town from my parents' apartment. They were looking for a third for occasional fun and spice. From our emails and phone conversations, they seemed intelligent and polite. They told me they both worked at the state office and were only two years older than me. I told them I was a teacher at a school near the university where I'd once tutored. When I arrived at their apartment, they welcomed me in and we shared a glass of wine in their small kitchen. The house, a wood shingled Victorian divided into three units, had the same layout as Dean's, which is a former love. The kitchen sat just off the bedroom, the dining alcove in the same spot. I pictured him and the thin girl at the kitchen sipping wine, his limbs slowly interlacing with hers. I took a big sip from my glass, closed my eyes, stanched the thought. Patrick asked about my school, my work. I stitched together an answer based on the one session of half-assed tutoring I did in my first year of college. I told him I was a math teacher and I was relieved when he stopped there. Any more and I would have been exposed. To my surprise, they, remind, they remained smiling in front of me, then reassuringly at each other until Liz summoned Patrick into the living room where I heard them whispering. They returned to the kitchen. Why don't we move to the bedroom, Patrick said. In the bedroom, there was a camera set up to the side of the bed. I saw the red light blinking already turned on. Is this all right, Liz asked. I wasn't sure if it was. She kissed me and we fell to the bed. Patrick joined in, tearing our clothes off like we were Christmas presents. We made love for two hours and when it was done, I felt satisfied, but more important, my mind was empty, my lips tingling. I fell asleep and awoke at dawn. I dressed well as and Patrick were still sleeping, their arms crossed over each other. I caught the 7 a.m. bus back over to my side of town. My father would be eating breakfast then, almost ready to leave for work. From the bus, I watched the sunrise over City Hall. The bus was nearly empty. There was no one around to see me cry. And Let's skip this. We moved my mother to a hospice in downtown Philadelphia across the street from one of the cafes I used to visit when I was a teenager. She was taken there from the hospital by ambulance by two young women around my age, one of them larger, darker skinned, with hair gelled to her forehead and plastic looking curly cues. They wore smiles to which I had no concept of how to respond and joked in a careful way with me and my dad. I imagine them being trained to handle families with extreme sensitivity. You can use humor, but not too much. Stick to neutral subjects, nothing co controversial. My father rode in the ambulance while I waited outside the hospital under the neon emergency sign. After I'd spent 20 minutes in the cold, my mother's best friend pulled up in front of me in her old Chrysler. She cried as she turned the wheel, almost running red lights. We didn't speak. 
Her car smelled of stale. Her car smelled stale of smoke. The oldest station played on the radio. Al Green beneath a life a light layer of static. The hospice was a new place on the top floor of a cold brick building with few windows. When we arrived, a tie-dyed social worker tried to steer me into a cheerily lit kids' room. The staff had a phrase for what was happening to my mom, the dying process. And they said the words like they should be followed by a TM, like she was in the process of walking to the store or buying groceries, just another thing that humans do. While my father was out grabbing us prepared sandwiches for dinner, I crept into her room. I closed the door and shoved a chair against the doorknob so no one could enter. I had many things I wanted to say. Some sleepless nights ago, I'd made a list of all the things I needed to apologize for, all the things I needed to tell her I forgave her for. But as I stood there with those mathematics in hand, the weight of the moment on me, I said nothing. And when I tried to speak, only tears came. The pain was exponential, because as much as I cried, she could not comfort me, and this fact only multiplied my pain. I realized that this would be life, to figure out how to live without her hand on my back, her soft, accented English telling me, everything will be all right, Dondi. This was the paradox. How would I ever heal from losing the person who healed me? The question was so enormous that I could see only my entire life and everything I knew filling it. I think I'll stop there. Thanks. So, if anybody has questions or comments, exclamations, <laughs> happy to answer them. Why did you want to start with that essay? Uh, so, I, um, I've been doing readings for a long time, and um, uh, either reading at them or organizing them, and I guess I'm somewhat of a stickler for, um, let's say, event planning or something like that. And I, I just wanted basically kind of a way to steer the conversation. Um, obviously, this is something that is on everyone's mind nowadays. Um, and I guess I kind of wanted to reflect on the last time I was here, what has happened in the time since, um, what, how I was feeling at the time, um, and particularly, um, you know, thematically. Um, so really what I was trying to express in that part of the essay specifically um, has to do with the line that I read um, which said, um, we did not go to sleep on November 8th and wake up in a more racist country, right? Um, so what I was trying to show is that um, there are instances of racism that we may not recognize all the time, but they go on, um, even in places as liberal as this, in places as liberal as my hometown. Um, and those things are just as important to recognize. And it's important to recognize also how people respond to them with their votes. Um, I think this past election was disturbing for a number of reasons, but one of the primary ones that has kind of persisted 
is that we have not disabused ourselves of some of the fictions and lies that we've told about racism and race in this country. And until we do that, we're not going to solve this problem. That's quite clear to me. Um, and the sort of dichotomy of Trump or the Republicans being racist and Democrats being not is so beyond ridiculous. Um, the Democrats have, you know, they basically have modeled the last couple decades uh, on Republicans and their strategy of appealing, of appealing to people's most um, racist impulses. And it's really important to remember that um, because if we do not diagnose the situation, we will never find a cure or a remedy. And so that is what I've really been trying to tell people is that we need to look at this carefully, objectively, and with an eye for solutions and not for sort of telling ourselves comforting things that we live in a safe place. We don't uh, until we recognize that we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. Um, no, you wrote the book obviously during the Obama era, and I'm assuming mm -hmm. you might have believed that it'd be read in the context of the Hillary era, and yet it's going to be read, like you said, in the Trump context. So mm -hmm. how do you think the context now in which people are reading the book versus when the context that you're writing it, how it's going to influence necessarily how people read it, what they take away yeah. from it, and how it necessarily influences what the message you're trying to convey? Well, first of all, I think uh, after, you know, the, the tears and the typical devastated reactions. I think all artists woke up after the election was like, we're like, shit, what is this gonna do to my art? <laughs> you know, everyone had that thought. And I think it's really surprising kind of where we've, we've ended up now. Um, I think uh, in many ways, um, my writing and who am I, I am as a person, as a thinker were very much embodied um, in the Obama era and some of you know his ideas and some of his writing um, and I've, write ab I've written about him quite a bit um, and some things, some different topics in the book have become sort of uh, newly important um, primary of, of which is the issue of inequality of, in healthcare which is something that was foremost in my mind when I was writing this book and importantly when I was going through the experiences that informed this book. So I was spending a lot of time in hospitals. Um, this is, you know, based on what happened to me. I, I moved home and took care of my mother when she was dying and um, I spent a lot of time in these places and had to make a lot of really, really, really tough decisions. And what I kept thinking um, when I was having to make these decisions with my family is, well, what if you add to it not being able to afford it? And that was something that I was constantly coming up against. And now, you know, we're living, shit, that is my phone, sorry. Um, no, it is, yeah, it's under the desk. It's my alarm, sorry. Um, so, uh, yeah, and now we are living in a time where, look at what's going on. We have, um, I think this is probably going to end up being a real, a really important point in history um, where we have uh, disabled activists camping out in, yeah. on, yeah, on Capitol Hill and in, and in, um, and in senators' offices, you know, I think we're seeing, um, and also with de deportations, 
something very akin to probably the civil rights movement where we see people who are the most vulnerable in society putting themselves in harm's way almost compulsively, yeah. right? Um, and who knew that that was going to happen? Who knew that that would be the result of this election? I don't think many people knew that. I was not smart enough to know that. Um, I tend to ramble. To a nutshell, um, I, I think, I was thinking about this before I came, and I think that there are still many issues that have gone unexplored from this election. One of them is a deeper investigation of race, as I mentioned. Um, and number two, that um, I think people should really start to pay attention to, and this has to do with Obama, is the generational divide and the effect that that has had and will continue to have. We are living in a time of tremendous rupture. Um, and I think that the understanding that people my age and younger have right now is something that the older generation does not have for many reasons, but primary of which because we've had to make do with a lot less. We don't have pensions. We don't have health care. Um, and of course, there are many people in the older generations that don't as well. But my parents' generation is sort of the last one for which that was possible, to have a pension and retire and be taken care of. Um, and so I think it's really important that um, the people of the younger generation start to really get active and start really shaping where this country is going in the same way that we did under Obama. Um, and I think what we'll probably begin to see, and there was an echo of this in the UK election, that um, this, well, this result was not an end, it was a statement that we were right in the first place. And that's actually what I end up saying at the end of the essay, that we should not be turned off by what happened and how many young people stayed at home. We should see it as a possibility and a call to action. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so I, uh, by now I've done about <laughs> maybe 12, 15 interviews, and I've gotten this question every single time. I think in some ways it is for various reasons that I'm still trying to understand um, maybe Phil's first question with this book, and I think it's pretty complicated. Um, so I mentioned the circumstances um, around which this book is based. And so I think first you have to kind of put yourself in that state of mind. And it's difficult if you have not experienced it. Um, this book came, it started out as a series of notes that I was taking during that time. So what would happen was, you know, I was taking, I was taking care of my mom and by the end of the day, uh, I was so exhausted and so drained that I only had the energy to write about a paragraph, sometimes a sentence at a time. And um, I started collecting these notes and they were just reflections, sometimes things that I was observing. And a lot of what I just read came from those notes. And I think that's why it does feel very real to people is because there are some things that I say that you don't really, you wouldn't know unless you've been through it. Um, and so I think that's, that's number one. I think that's why people um, have asked me that question so much. But 
the finished book and the manuscript, the beginning of a manuscript, are two very, very different things. Um, and when I started working on this book in earnest, it was a few months after that had happened, uh, a few months to a year, and I was still actively grieving. Um, and the only thing that I knew I wanted to do was to express the truth of this experience. And I just did an interview with NPR this morning, and they asked me this question as well. And my answer was, sometimes fiction is the way to tell the truth. What I'm concerned with is telling political truths, telling emotional truths, telling human truths. And for me, this was about the best way to express myself and give myself the most freedom to depict this experience. And really the only thing that made sense for that was fiction. And when I was writing it, I didn't even think about it because in some ways, well, you can't think about where it will end up. I was just thinking about writing a good book and that happened to be fiction and it has turned into this. So, but I never thought about you know where it would be shelved or anything like that. I was just trying to write something that felt true, so. Are there any thinkers informing your thought, um, living or past, any debts you hold to people who are shaping your... Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, many of them, I, you know, had the privilege of, of having them uh, endorse the book. Um, Paul Beatty was a, a very important mentor of mine. Um, I was in his classes at Columbia, and um, it was actually in his classes where I started to write in this more fragmented style. Um, so I had done that in stories and essays going back for several years. Um, and I had always, before I got to his class, I had always kind of alternated between more traditional narrative and these, something that looks more like the novel. Um, but as many writers do, I felt like there, when I was approaching the novel, I felt like I had to write it in a certain way. And when I was in his class, he gave me permission and said, you should really do this, this is really good. And it, that really had a big effect on my writing, giving me permission to, to write in this way. Um, Margot Jefferson, another person um, who's written amazing criticism and um, about um, about race, about gender, about sexuality. Um, everyone should read Negroland if you haven't. She was also a teacher of mine. Hilton Owls, John Edgar Weidman, they were all teachers of mine. Um, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, I started reading him. I wrote an essay about being a longtime fangirl of his. Uh, James Baldwin, obviously. And then um, Franz Fanon, who is the uh, famous scholar who wrote about colonialism. Um, and, uh, yes, but I, I don't agree with him. <laughs> um, Audre Lorde, who I quote in the epigraph, um, and a couple, Adrian Rich and Angela Davis. Um, they, all three of them wrote books on motherhood. No, Audre Lorde wrote a book on cancer called The Cancer Journals. Um, Adrian Rich is Of Woman Born, and Angela Davis's Women, Race, and Class were three books that um, I was reading and drew inspiration from specifically when I was writing this book. Um, no, you know, Why 
Well, I've read her, and I, I like her writing quite a lot, but for this book specifically, I didn't want to go too contemporary for those parts. So. Thank you. Sure. Tom. You seem to be interested in both writing political nonfiction and also fiction. Mm -hmm. What are you working on right now? Um, so when Viking signed up this book, they also bought another one of mine, um, and uh, they they left it open whether it would be fiction or nonfiction. Currently, I'm thinking it's going to be a, an essay collection, so collecting some of the essays that I've written, um, putting them together, writing a couple more. I'm working on um, one now about colorism, um, hoping to do, hoping to put the, the election one in, and a couple other ideas. Yeah. Hi. You said specifically about finding mentors. So you mean like, is it easier or harder to? Well, I guess it's like a two-part question. Is, mm -hmm. is Columbia worth it? Um, or what do you think, Emily? <laughs> right. Um, right. That's not the experience for everyone because it's such a big program. And just the ability to find people who are like you in other programs. For instance, I'm a Latino writer. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's really important. And I think that's something that's really important. Yeah, I'm, you know, I think, I think the best response to this is to say um, when I entered. Columbia, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so I knew I wanted to write a novel. I knew what I needed to do to get a novel published because I had worked in publishing and I had very purposefully pursued a career in publishing because I knew I wanted to be a writer. And so I was like a mole, right? Trying to crack the system. Um, and I think no matter where you go, um, Yeah, it's a, it's extremely expensive, and um, there aren't that many fellowships available. So, first of all, the reason why I wanted to go to Columbia is because there was access to the publishing industry, because I knew I wanted to either publish a novel or work there. So it was important for me to go there, and when I went, you know, those people that I just named did not come up to me and say, Zinzi, you're so brilliant, can I be your mentor, right? I had to really seek them out. Um, and I did my best in their classes to, to try and get their attention, and it worked. Um, and that was not because I wanted them to be in my book. It was because I, I admired them. Um, so I think there are so many MFA programs now. There are low residency programs. There are so many different options. Uh, we're not dealing with a situation like even when I was going into my program, which was a few years ago, because it's just exploded. You have so much choice. And I would say, um, for anything you want to do, there's a program that can accommodate it, but it's really important to 
stick to your goals and know what you want to get out of it and work very hard to get that desired result. Um, and then, you know, in particular for uh, finding mentors, like I said, do your homework, and that includes reading their books. Um, you know, I think for the rest of the question, I might have to, that might be a private conversation, but an interesting one. Um, I definitely had the same reservations about Columbia. My friend Emily is here, my former classmate, and we actually did a lot of work while we were in the program, um, and we founded, that was when I actually founded Apogee. We founded a group together for feminist writers, um, and we talked a lot to the administration about hiring more writers of color and about diversifying their syllabi, both in terms of gender and um, race. And, you know, I'm... First of all, I, I don't think you should go anywhere where you're not appreciated. Um, but at the same time, I believe that you should be involved in making uh, the result that you want to see. So if you do enter, and I would really say this to anybody who's, who's entering an MFA program, um, enter it with the idea that it is something that can be made into something that you want and then make it that way. Um, I don't think anybody in MFAs now has a very clear idea of what it's supposed to be or how it should be run. It's still sort of an experimental form of pedagogy. So make those changes and be loud. And um, especially if you're going to a place like Columbia, you're paying them a lot of money, so they should listen to you. And that was the attitude we had. <laughs> I think, are we good on time? We can take one more. One more, okay. Okay. Yeah. You said you wanted to tell a book about truths. How did you know when it was finished? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So my process for this was, uh, you know, because it's not a, chronolo a chronological book, it's different. You know, you don't just get to the end and it's done. Um, although that is a simplification of that process. But the way that I wrote it was I wrote it in pieces first. Um, and then I took those pieces and I moved them around a lot. And that process of moving the pieces around took about a year total. So I was doing a lot of editing um, of the manuscript in my technical writing process. Um, and the order that I arrived on is basically, for the most part, reflected in this book. And that was just trial and error. So I was just moving things around and seeing how they looked. And then I would just, every once in a while, just read it over again. And at some point, it just felt like it worked, you know? And um, I did, I definitely did, and I, I would recommend this to people. I didn't get it to perfect, perfect, right? Because I knew that during the shopping process, during the editorial process, that some things would be changed. Um, and I also, I think it's important also to, to really rely on other people's feedback during that process um, because when you're writing any piece, any, anything, but especially something that as long as involved as a novel, you stop seeing it from the outside. Um, and so I think in the latter stages of the process, my readers were really key. Um, I have an excellent reader and my husband. Um, who unfortunately is not here because he's launching his book in the UK now. Um, and I think really relying on other, relying on readers, trusted readers, um, but also just kind of leaving things 
a little bit as they are. You know, I think when we when we refine things too much and try to make them perfect in our mind, a lot of times what that does is it removes the possibility for other people, right? So there's still some pieces in this book that I feel are still unfinished, but those are also the parts that I'm looking forward to people reacting to, um, because I was kind of saying I'm done with them, um, but make of them what you will. And I think that's a really important part of writing itself is um, detaching yourself from it. And that's a decision. It's not a, there's no blueprint for that. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.